Welcome to The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Santa Herwald, a third-year medical student at the Tufts University School of Medicine. And I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. We each realized the educational power of podcasts for medical education and worked with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this podcast, and we hope that you will find the podcast both enjoyable and educational. In this episode of The Sound of IR, Dr. Aaron Brandis, an interventional radiologist at the Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center, discusses the management of gastrointestinal bleeding with the two of us. Dr. Brandis, thank you for speaking with us today about the role of interventional radiology in the care of patients with GI bleeds. Thanks, Dan and Ben. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to discuss everyone's favorite topic of GI bleeding one of the mysterious disease processes that only seems to occur between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. There's a lot we'd like to discuss, Dr. Brandis, about this topic, but first we'd love to hear your story of how you got here. So how did you decide to become an interventional radiologist? So my path to uh, interventional radiology was a little circuitous, but actually if you speak to enough interventional radiologists, it's not too uncommon. During medical school, my favorite clinical rotation was pediatric surgery. You know, the hours were insane, but the uh, breadth of the procedures and variety really made it a lot of fun. Um, you'd start the day operating on a newborn for an infallocele, and then you'd follow that up with an appendectomy on a 17-year-old. And I just really liked the, um, the diverse nature of the, the procedures. So with that background, um, I matched it to general surgery and planned to take the nine-plus year journey to be a pediatric surgeon. But by October of my intern year, I I realized I made a big mistake. Um, Surgery was technically challenging, but for me, really lacked the mental stimulation I needed to survive and um, thrive in that career. So luckily for for me, um, at my program, the the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, um, vascular surgery and IR worked together on all AAA uh, endovascular aortic aneurysm repair procedures. Um, vascular surgery would do the bilateral common femoral artery cutdowns uh, to gain access in the interventional radiology suite. And then vascular surgery would be on the right side working and IR would be on the left side working. And this uh, was my introduction to interventional radiology. And through this, I was able to see how incredible a specialty it really is. It has a wide breadth of procedures that I loved about pediatric surgery. Uh, There's really no um, organ system that IR does not intervene on, and that also has the procedural aspect and the mental aspect of having to interpret images in real time in order to guide that procedure and sort of satisfy both my procedural and maybe more mental uh, needs and specialty. So I became friends with one of the younger IR attendings who mentored me in my transition from general surgery to radiology with the end goal of um, a fellowship in interventional radiology. While I did enjoy the diagnostic radiology um, residency, I knew I couldn't do that for a career. Uh, Throughout residency, I would always sneak over to IR and jump in on cases whenever possible. And they say, you know, you can't be a surgeon if you don't love being in the OR, but the good news is you can still be a minimally invasive proceduralist, and it turns out that's a lot more fun. It's great to hear about your journey. Um, As you went through training, how did you decide to structure your current practice of IR? 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, there really isn't an, an organ system that IR does not intervene on, and the interventions are still expanding every day. Newer procedures these days include stroke intervention, prosthetic artery embolization, and lymphatic interventions, to name a few. And this is both incredibly exciting and interesting, but also can be quite daunting. And personally, I believe the days of interventional radiologists being able to do everything are coming to an end, and we're going to start seeing much more subspecialization, including subspecialty fellowships. So a graduate of a new IR integrated residency program who is interested in a particular area, say interventional oncology, would go on to do a fellowship in interventional oncology, and then their practice would be predominantly in that region. Personally, the areas I enjoyed most in fellowship were treatment of peripheral arterial disease and interventional oncology. I also really enjoy teaching residents and fellows, and with all that, I was able to find a, a good position um, at Penn where I could do all of that. But if then, you know, life happened, and I found myself relocating last October back here at Arizona, where I actually grew up, and uh, I took a job at Banner and Anderson Cancer Center in Phoenix. So my practice now is predominantly interventional oncology, which I love to do. And I've also gotten involved with the University of Arizona Medical School in Phoenix, um, working with the medical students, trying to spread the gospel of IR and teach them how amazing a specialty it truly is. Thanks for sharing some of your story with us. And hopefully we can help spread some of the IR gospel with this podcast as well. With that, let's, let's launch into the discussion of GI bleeding. My understanding is that GI bleeds can be deadly and that an interventional radiologist is more likely to be involved when there's an acute bleed of visible blood and less commonly for the slow chronic GI bleeding that's only seen with a hemocult test. But it seems that interventional radiologists are involved with the diagnosis and management of GI bleeds from a variety of causes in both the upper GI tract and lower GI tract. Dr. Brandis, could you describe for us some of the most common clinical situations or underlying diagnoses where an interventional radiologist would be involved in the management of a GI bleed? Yeah, GI bleeding is one of the more common causes of life-threatening bleeding that we are consulted about and one where we play um, a vital role. The wastebasket diagnosis of GI bleeding includes a myriad of disease processes whose scope really is too large for a single podcast, so we'll try to focus on the more common causes. If I miss your favorite, you can at me on Twitter and express your displeasure, and I'll be happy to engage with you there. So the first critical branch point is determining the location of the bleed. That is whether it's an upper GI bleed or a lower GI bleed. Um, a GI bleed source proximal to the ligament of trites, uh, which is where the duodenum meets the jejunum, which occurs more frequently, is classified as part of the upper gastrointestinal tract and a source distal to ligament atrites is considered to be part of the lower gastrointestinal tract. The majority of cases, the distinction is actually quite clear between upper and lower GI bleeding, but there are cases where the initial examination by the consulting physician misses the actual etiology. In my experience, this is more common with upper GI bleed masquerading as a lower GI bleed due to the presentation of hematochesia. So a thorough review of the patient's clinical history, their imaging and presentation by the interventional radiologist is paramount. Um, remember, we're the clinical specialist, not just a mindless catheter jockey. So with that, all that being said, causes of upper GI bleeding include gastric and duodenal ulcers from you know, peptic ulcer disease, H. pylori, 
gastroesophageal varices from portal hypertension, gastritis, duodenitis. They can be post-surgical, say uh, post-Whipple procedure from angiodysplasia and cancer. Causes of lower GI bleeding are also broad and include diverticulosis, uh, angiodysplasia, vascular malformations, cancer, varices. The most common causes where we intervene are gastric and duodenal ulcers, um, upper and lower GI bleeding um, caused by varices, and diverticular bleeding. Um, the topic of portal hypertension and variceal bleeding is com incredibly complex and requires its own podcast, so we won't go into much detail on that today. That's an excellent point that we should trust and verify when consulted to treat a GI bleed or other condition. That's a great overview of the, as you said, heterogeneous topic of GI bleeding. And Dr. Brandis, it seems like GI bleeds are often dangerous enough for an interventional radiologist to be called urgently. So if you receive an urgent call about a GI bleed, what are some of the first pieces of information you want to know? And what sort of labs and studies would you like to order? And then based on this information, um, how do you judge how urgently you need to see the patient? And are there any treatments or interventions that you would ask the patient's current care team to start before you can see the patient yourself? Yeah, so GI bleeding definitely requires a multidisciplinary approach. And I recommend every interventional radiologist becomes fast friends with their gastroenterology colleagues because they're on the front lines with us in treating these patients. When the emergency medicine physician calls at midnight, my first question is, why couldn't this happen at noon? Uh, but seriously, I ask for a pertinent full history of the patient, including age, presentation, you know, is it hematemesis or hematochesia, uh, the onset of the bleed, did it happen at 8 a.m. or is it currently happening? Um, the duration, is it recurrent? Is it, has it happened frequently in the past or is this the first episode? Does the patient have any comorbidities um, such as, you know, do they have known cirrhosis? So I would suspect something like variceal bleeding or do they have known diverticulosis and it'd be more of a diverticular bleed? Is the patient on any medications that would make them more um, prone to bleeding like blood thinners? Uh, do they have uh, a relevant past surgical history? I don't care if the patient had hip replacement, but if for some reason the patient has axillary femoral bypass graft, that's definitely nice to know about. And then, of course, their physical exam findings, um, their vital signs, you know, that'll tell me if the patient is stable or unstable, um, their hemoglobin and hematocrit, uh, to see how low they've gotten from bleeding, um, the INR, if they're on blood thinners, um, that's definitely important to know. And then their creatinine, to know if I can, um, how liberal I need to be with the, uh, the contrast or if the patient can have uh, a CT with IV contrast. And then if they've done any imaging so far, um, do they have a CT? Do they have an ultrasound which shows, you know, cirrhosis and portal hypertension or any other imaging in the past? Uh, has, the, has GI seen the patient? Has GI scoped the patient, which is a very important thing we'll talk about. And then also what's often overlooked is, is the patient consensible? If I, have, if I have to come in to do a procedure, we need to figure out how we need to get consent. So if the, all that kind of proves that the patient has an upper GI bleeding source, the first procedure uh, should be upper endoscopy performed by gastroenterology. 
and this is both for diagnostic and therapeutic uh, reasons. For example, a patient with alcoholic cirrhosis, known portal hypertension with esophageal varices, may also have peptic ulcer disease and could be bleeding from that and not the varices. So GI can usually localize the bleeding as well as the cause of the bleeding, and then they have multiple ways of treating upper GI bleeding, including cautery, clipping of the bleeding ulcers, banding of the variceal hemorrhage, and then if GI fails to control the bleeding and there's ongoing active bleeding or recurrent bleeding shortly after endoscopy in these patients, that's when we tend to get involved. And thanks for that description of finding an upper GI bleed source. What about with a lower GI bleed? Uh, acute lower GI bleeds are often much more nuanced in terms of whether or not we need to intervene. At Penn, a lot of effort went into developing an acute lower GI bleeding algorithm using evidence-based medicine. And this, the uh, main players are GI, uh, interventional radiology, and emergency surgery. So if the patient has an ongoing active lower GI bleed, that is continued episodes of hematochesia following hemoglobin or is clinically unstable, uh, my first recommendation is to get a CT arteriogram, um, aka CTA of the abdomen and pelvis. Uh, this can be performed rapidly and can localize the uh, bleeding to direct my treatment. Knowing exactly where the bleeding is occurring before intervention is incredibly helpful. Uh, in the past, nuclear medicine tagged RBC bleeding scans were done. However, these are time intensive, you know, requiring uh, over an hour and um, actually detect bleeding rates that are below what we can see during routine arteriography. Um, that is, they can detect bleeding rates of 0.1 milliliters per minute, while on arteriogram it's often uh, 0.5 milliliters per minute. And thus, if you intervene based on a nuclear medicine scan, uh, that leads to high rates of negative arteriograms. And they also offer very uh, limited information about the anatomic location of the bleed. They can give you a general area, say, coming from the transverse colon, but that's fed by multiple arteries and is less, less useful than a CTA. So in acute lower GI bleeding setting, I no longer recommend uh, nuclear medicine uh, bleeding scans be performed. So assuming there is evidence of active bleeding on the CTA, um, that's usually what will cause me to intervene emergently. Uh, if the patient is coagulopathic, I'll request the INR to be corrected uh, to be less than 1.5. Um, typically that involves FFP, but if it's severely elevated or we need to rapidly reverse it, you can use K-Centra, uh, which is a product that replaces uh, certain coagulation factors. Although now with a transradial approach, we can start the intervention while um, the correction is occurring. And if the patient is clinically unstable and the hemoglobin is low, uh, I'll request a red, red blood cell transfusion but otherwise nothing specific for those patients. Yeah, I can really imagine the flow of the patient's care from your description. I'd also like to come back to the question of transfusion a little later on. So once you have found the source of a GI bleed, what are some of the standard techniques that you might use to treat it? And how do you decide which technique to use for a given case? Yeah, so again, with the, uh, the bride possibilities. I'll use gastric and duodenal ulcer bleeding as an example for treatment of upper GI tract bleeding and then diverticular bleeds for the lower GI tract. 
So the first step for all arterial embolization procedures is um, arterial access. Uh, we don't have time to debate the transfemoral versus transradial access today, um, but I do look forward to that future podcast where that lively debate will occur. So you can pick your favorite access site and then uh, get rolling. So in the case of upper GI bleeding, we usually have the benefit of GI telling us the source of the bleeding and the location. Uh, they actually often will clip the site of bleeding to allow us to use that as a landmark. The great aspect of upper GI bleeding is you really do not need to worry about causing ischemia with your embolization uh, due to the extensive collateral arterial pathways in the upper GI tract. And so this gives you a little more leeway uh, in embolization when compared to uh, lower GI bleeding. But these collateral networks also require you to often interrogate multiple vessels to ensure that you appropriately treat the source of bleeding. So let's take uh, the example of a patient with a gastric fundal ulcer has failed endoscopic management. Uh, before I even start the case, I have a game plan because I know uh, the arterial anatomy of the stomach and that the left gastric artery, aka the LGA, is the predominant arterial supply to the gastric fundus, and that's going to be my first target. So in the majority of patients, the left gastric artery is a branch of the celiac axis directly, but there's incredible amount of variant arterial anatomy possible in the upper GI tract. For example, many patients uh, either have an accessory left hepatic artery or, or, or a replaced left hepatic artery, um, which arises off the left gastric artery. And it's definitely important to recognize that prior to embolizing the left gastric artery because you do not want to embolize the liver unnecessarily. So in this case, I'll start with accessing the right common femoral artery and placing five French sheath. Uh, became, because I trained at Penn, my go-to catheter for celiac and superior mesenteric artery work is a Simmons 1 catheter, uh, but you can use your reverse curve catheter of choice that will allow you to select the celiac access. Then I'll do a celiac arteriogram. Uh, again, what I'm looking for is the left gastric artery. Um, are there any funky arterial variants, and do I see any active bleeding uh, in the gastric fundus? If possible, I will um, select the left gastric artery with the Simmons catheter and then do a selective arteriogram. Um, but if I can't get the Simmons to sort of pop up into the left gastric artery, I'll use a microcatheter to um, select that. And then actually regardless of whether or not I see active bleeding, my plan will be to embolize the left gastric artery in these cases. And my embolic of choice will be a combination of coils and gel foam. Um, you can use embolic microspheres and glue as well, but those are more expensive. In today's uh, healthcare, you know, it's frowned upon if you use the more expensive embolics when they're not needed. So once I've appropriately embolized the left gastric artery, um, I will then select the splenic artery, which also is, comes off the celiac artery, and do an, a splenic arteriogram. Uh, that's because the short gastric arteries arise off the splenic arteries and can contribute to GI bleeding in these cases. I usually do not prophylactically embolize the short gastrics or the splenic artery, so if I don't see any bleeding on the splenic arteriogram, I'm done. Awesome. Thanks for that example. So you mentioned uh, duodenal ulcers. So what's your process for those? 
Yeah, so for uh, bleeding uh, duodenal ulcer, my steps are initially quite similar. Again, I'm going to assume the endoscopist saw duodenal bleeding and they failed to endoscopically manage that bleeding. So I'll select the celiac access and do a celiac arteriogram. I'll then use the microcatheter to select the gastroduodenal artery um, and do a selective run there. Again, regardless of whether I visualize bleeding or not, I will advance my microcatheter to the first portion of the right gastroepicloic artery, which is a branch of the gastroduodenal artery. And I will begin coiling at that point and coil back across the uh, GDA to the origin of the, G of the GDA off the common hepatic artery. Um, the last two coils are usually detachable coils, meaning if I deploy them and I don't like their position, I can remove them because I want to ensure that I don't coil back uh, too proximally into the common hepatic artery and alter blood flow to the liver. Uh, once I successfully embolize the gastroduodenal artery, I will then select the superior mesenteric artery and do a SMA arteriogram. And that's to ensure that there's no backfilling of the GDA through collaterals arising off the SMA. Oftentimes people get lazy and after embolizing the GDA, they stop the case and do not do an SMA arteriogram. And it's those cases where the patient will have recurrent bleeding and that's because the source was incompletely treated. So don't be lazy. Uh, wow, so it seems that you really need to know not only your anatomy, but also your vascular anatomy variants. You mentioned before that finding lower GI bleeds is more nuanced. So what about interventions for lower GI bleeds? Yeah, so treatment of lower GI uh, diverticular bleeding, in my experience, is more difficult. In the lower GI tracts, you do not have the rich vascular collateral networks, and thus you need to be much more selective in your embolization. Your goal for a diverticular bleed is to catheterize all the way out to the vasorecta or terminal artery. And if you cannot catheterize that selectively, you can often get away with embolizing the marginal artery of Drummond across the origin of the terminal artery that is supplying the bleeding diverticulum. But you need to be careful not to embolize a large segment of colon and place that patient at risk for ischemia. In some instances where the patient has massive hemorrhage and is hemodynamically unstable, but you're unable to get super selective. For the embolization, you can attempt a more proximal embolization for the patient. However, before doing this, you must discuss that with the surgeon so they realize that the patient will likely require at least a partial colectomy um, due to that proximal embolization and then high risk of ischemia. So the goal in that case would be you do the embolization to turn um, the surgery from an emergency when the patient is in hemorrhagic shock and has a high likelihood of poor outcome to a later time when the patient is more stable and the surgical outcome will be better. If the patient is experiencing diverticular bleeding, hopefully we have a CTA to demonstrate the area of colon that the bleeding is arising from, and that definitely helps guide us. In a patient with conventional arterial anatomy, the ascending colon is supplied by the right colic artery, which comes off the SMA. The transverse colon is supplied by the middle colic artery, all which also comes off the SMA. And then the descending colon is supplied by the left uh, colic artery, um, which is off the inferior mesenteric artery. And the sigmoid is supplied by sigmoidal branches off the inferior mesenteric artery. So in a bleed originating in the watershed region of the splenic flexure may be supplied by either the SMA or the IMA. 
and your route to that bleed would be determined by which artery is, is dominant or appears the um, easiest route. So again, in treatment of these patients, I will get right common femoral artery arterial access and place a five French sheath. If I'm planning on selecting the IMA, I will actually use uh, a RIM catheter, which stands for um, Roche Inferior Mesenteric Catheter, and selectively do an IMA arteriogram um, in multiple obliquities. Um, oftentimes, you will not see bleeding on the first runs because the overall vasoconstriction and the fact that the bleeding site is a terminal artery, uh, it takes time for the contrast to get there and the bowel motion can obscure the bleeding. So again, this is where having a pre-procedural CTA demonstrating the site uh, of bleeding is extremely useful because it allows us to target the portion of colon where the bleeding was visualized and then use a microcatheter to select um, the artery that supplies this area. Uh, so once you select the feeding artery and do super selective arteriograms, you'll, also, you'll often find um, the bleeding site and then you can further use the microcatheter catheterized all the way out to the terminal artery or the marginal artery as discussed above um, to safely embolize. So for lower GI bleeds, I also uh, use coils as my embolic of choice, but if you've appropriately selective, selected the distal artery, you can use glue, which we'll discuss a little bit more later, or even particles if you like. A bleed coming from the right or transverse colon, I'll follow the same steps I just outlined above, except I'll select the SMA initially. Interesting. Um, I can really see how useful the pre-procedural CT angiogram can be. Dr. Brandis, are there any techniques you would use only for special cases of a GI bleed? Yeah, so one, one example are cases of recurrent lower GI bleeding, uh, again, which are, these are frequently due to diverticular bleeding that we uh, haven't been able to catch during the active phase. The patient is often told there's nothing else to do, and after multiple episodes of this, they're told that they're going to require a total colectomy. So an important technique that we can do to save these patients from surgery is what's called provocative arteriography. I must mention that before you attempt this, you must have surgery on board because if you initiate another episode of bleeding and then you cannot stop it, um, the patient may require emergent surgery. Also make sure you have methylene blue on hand, which is used to inject to serve as a marker to the surgeon for the region of the colon that's bleeding. So the colonic resection will actually remove the um, involved area. And then it's important to have at least two units of packed red blood cells uh, ready to transfuse um, before doing this. Uh, so the protocol for um, provocative arteriography, which I stole from the imitable Sabine, you can uh, search him on Twitter, at S-D-H-A-N-D-M-D, uh, if you're interested in following him. Uh, but so the protocol itself is first I will give 5,000 units of heparin IV and 200 micrograms of nitroglycerin uh, intraarterially. And then five minutes after that, uh, do uh, an arteriogram. If that doesn't demonstrate bleeding, you can give five to 10 milligrams of TPA intraarterially which you should infuse relatively slowly at about one milliliter per minute. Um, and then after infusing that, you do a arteriogram 
five minutes later. Again, if you do not visualize any bleeding, you can repeat the TPA infusions up to the max dose I'll use is 40 milligrams. Other people may use less. Other people may use more. Obviously, noting that the more you use, the more likely you are to initiate bleeding in places other than the GI tract. So you have to be careful. If the bleeding before uh, doing this procedure has been localized to a region of the colon, aka it's uh, you know just in the it's been localized to the ascending colon, but hasn't been able to figure out where. You can get away with a single catheter. So if it was in the ascending colon, you could get away with a single catheter in the uh, SMA. But if the source is truly unknown, you may need to have a catheter in both the SMA and the IMA and infuse TPA into both of these, as well as do arteriograms in both of these. And that often requires two arterial accesses. Dr. Brandis, what's the concept behind this protocol? The concept behind this technique is that the infusion of the TPA will dissolve the fresh blood clot on the artery that has been causing the recent episodes of hemorrhage, and it will become, when the blood clot dissolves, it's going to become evident on your arteriogram when you see active bleeding. And then once you identify the source, you can use the standard techniques um, we discussed above for embolization. And if all goes well, save the patient from a massive surgery and they get to keep their colon and avoid all the morbidity that comes with a partial or total colectomy. Wow, that is a great technique. And everyone should follow Dr. Sabine Don on Twitter, by the way. So are there special considerations when treating a GI bleed compared to other endovascular procedures? For example, what's your view on transfusing blood products during the procedure? It, there's nothing uh, in particular that is special with GI bleeding when compared to other bleeding embolization procedures. Um, that we perform in terms of critical care management. Our interventional radiology nurses are extremely well-trained and capable of managing um, the sickest patients in the hospital. And this includes patients on multiple pressors from hemorrhagic shock. If the patient is actively bleeding with a hemoglobin below 8 or requiring significant vasopressor support, I will uh, recommend transfusion of red blood cells. Like I mentioned before, it's important to reverse any anticoagulation that may be present. Uh, anesthesia is not required unless the patient has issues with an airway for some reason. In an active GI bleed, we don't really have time to waste for the extra time that might be required for anesthesia to join the party. Okay. I've also heard about administering uh, triotide for some bleeds. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, artriotide uh, can be used in cases of variceal bleeding with the idea that the artriotide lowers the portal venous pressure and thus decreases the blood flowing into the varics that's bleeding. I Honestly, I've never been convinced this does very much, and if we're involved in a case of GI bleeding from varices, then the TIPS or the RTO, which is retrograde transvenous obliteration procedure, is really the definitive way to manage these patients and is much more successful than a triotide. I see. Um, and what about vasopressin? Yeah, so vasopressin acts as a vasoconstriction agent that if administered directly into the superior inferior mesenteric artery invokes the intense vasoconstriction, um, thus reduces blood flow to the area, lowers perfusion pressure, and then will allow clot formation in the area of bleeding. The issue is that vasopressin carries systemic risks of vasoconstriction, um, especially cardiac-related, and can induce arrhythmias 
uh, such as bradycardia or ventricular tachycardia, can lead to hypotension, can lead to angina, and also to cardiac arrest. This is actually the preferred method of treatment uh, for lower GI bleeding in the past when the embolization tools were not as advanced as they are today and the ischemic complications that I mentioned earlier occurred at very high rates of up to 33%. So although our embolization is more technically challenging, it has the advantages of quicker completion of therapy, decreased recurrence of bleeding, and decreased complications when compared to infusion of uh, vasopressin into the vessel that's bleeding. Um, so modern day embolization techniques and tools have really greatly lowered the risk of uh, ischemia and thus have become the treatment of choice for lower GI bleeds. Now, this actually brings me to a, a good point. Is that I imagine IR training and practice as kind of accumulating different tools and storing them in this vast toolbox. So even though you may never use vasopressin to stop a GI bleed, um, should the day come when you're out alone in the middle of nowhere by yourself, no other options that you know about, you can go searching through that toolbox and dust it off, aka do a Google search and figure out the protocol for vasopressin infusion and then uh, use that to treat the patient. I see. It's very helpful to see what tools are used more commonly nowadays, but it's an excellent point well taken that we need to be prepared. Are there particular types of GI bleeds that are especially difficult to control? And if so, how do you approach those cases? So not to cop out, but uh, every GI bleeding case can be quite difficult. Um, oftentimes the patient will have an anatomic variant or just tortuous arteries that make catheterization of the bleeding vessel difficult. A few examples of particularly difficult cases I've dealt with come to mind. Um, diverticular disease, as you know, is a disease that increases as we age. And very frequently the lower GI bleed patients are older and have underlying atherosclerotic disease on top of the diverticular disease. So it's not uncommon for these patients to have an included origin of the inferior mesenteric artery um, because of the atherosclerosis. So this is a gradual process over time as opposed to an acute embolism. So the human body is able to adapt to this occlusion by hypertrophying the collateral pathways to meet the demands of the, the colon that's normally supplied by the uh, INA. So these patients often have an enlarged marginal artery of Drummond or arc of Riolan um, that collateralizes the superior mesenteric artery uh, through the middle colic artery to the inferior mesenteric artery through the left colic artery. So if you imagine this patient having a diverticular bleed in the distal descending colon, the normal approach of IMA catheterization to the left colic artery is blocked because the origin of the IMA is blocked. And so the only route we have to get there uh, may be from the SMA through the marginal artery to the descending colon. This is a long path with a lot of tortuosity and can be incredibly difficult to manipulate a microcatheter that distance and select uh, the terminal artery that is bleeding to safely embolize that. Another recent case I had was a uh, bleeding duodenal ulcer in a thin 43-year-old woman. I went into the case expecting it to be an easy chip shot, GDA embolization, you know, maybe it'll take me 20, 25 minutes. 
but after flailing for a long period of time, uh, simply trying to select the celiac artery, I decided to do an aortogram, which is not a common thing I do in these cases, but to see why I was having such a difficult time selecting the celiac artery. Um, the, on the lateral aortogram, it was evident um, that she actually had severe uh, median arcuate ligament compression. This is a, a ligament that connects the curve of the diaphragm, and when that compresses the origin of the celiac, that leads to a high-grade stenosis and can make it very difficult to catheterize the celiac artery. So after not being able to catheterize the celiac, I decided to select the superior mesenteric artery to see if there's a way that I could go a backdoor route to the GDA and what the SMA arteriogram demonstrated with these monstrous collaterals through the pancreaticoduodenal arcade that fed the gastroduodenal artery. And then I was able to navigate these collaterals to go from the SMA to the origin of the um, gastroduodenal artery, which is at the common hepatic artery, and then coil embolize the um, gastroduodenal artery. She had additional uh, collaterals that supplied the uh, common hepatic artery so that she would still have blood going to her liver, which is important to, to make sure of. However, this procedure took over two hours and much more time than the routine gastroduodenal artery embolization and certainly wasn't easy. Wow, it sounds like with so much collateralization and anatomic variation, you really need to be prepared for anything. Dr. Brandis, once a GI bleed has been successfully stopped, what's the typical follow-up care for these patients? And what sort of complications are important to detect in these post-procedural patients? Well, you know, the first step, of course, is high-fiving everyone um, that you stop the bleeding. But once the victory lap is done, the patient usually will, will return to the ICU and be closely monitored. Hopefully, there will be no recurrent bleeding and the patient's vital signs were stabilized. Like I mentioned above, in the patients with lower GI bleeds, the biggest complication you're looking for is colonic ischemia. Um, if you've performed an embolization that's appropriate, like I mentioned um, before, in patients with lower GI bleeds, uh, the biggest complication you're looking for is colonic ischemia. If you performed an appropriate embolization, the risk is incredibly low, but I will continue to follow the, the patients for a few days on the periphery to ensure that there are no rebleeding episodes and that there's no signs of colonic ischemia. If for some reason the patient begins to show signs of ischemia, for instance, if you take out a larger feeding vessel after discussing it with surgery and GI, then it often falls uh, to the surgeon to decide if the patient is going to require surgery and a bowel resection. In the case of baroceal bleeding, uh, treated with tips or your favorite uh, transvenous obliteration, these patients often require continued follow-up in clinic with us. Uh, but again, I'll leave that to the, the portal hypertension podcast. Sounds like we'll have to start planning a portal hypertension episode. So recurrent bleeding and for a lower GI bleed, colonic ischemia would be the biggest concern, it sounds like. Have you ever been asked to close an arteriovenous malformation that isn't actively bleeding, um, perhaps in an effort to prevent it from bleeding in the future? And do you approach these cases any differently than a case where the vessel is actively bleeding? Yeah, our, arterial venous malformations can be quite tricky, and I've honestly only treated two of these in my relatively young career. The key to effectively treating um, ABMs is really the choice of embolic, and that embolic of choice is glue. 
whether it's uh, NBCA or Onyx. And the aim of the embolization of AV malformations is to completely obliterate um, the entire network of abnormal vasculature comprising the malformation as partial treatment may allow recurrence. So MBCA is a liquid monomeric agent that polymerizes and solidifies when in contact with blood and it has uh, a low viscosity so it can be delivered through microcatheters within the diminutive vessels and can actually embolize the entire nidus. The issue is that there's a steep learning curve in working with this glue and if you're not careful you can actually glue your microcatheter into place um, in the patient or you can reflux glue and cause significant non-target embolization. So it's important to have a lot of practice and feel comfortable using the glue um, before attempting uh, embolization of an AVM in the GI tract. Interesting. I hadn't realized the extra points of caution when using glue. Uh, what else is important for listeners to know about the care of patients with GI bleeding? Well, if people are still listening and they haven't switched over to the latest uh, Ringer BS Report podcast, I'm actually truly impressed. Don't worry, Dr. Brandis. I have that on cue in my favorite podcast app for after we finish the interview. Oh, good. I'm glad. So, yeah, I've tried uh, to use kind of the most common and straightforward examples today, um, but I would like to stress that every patient is different and frequently can be quite complicated. Uh, that is why great communication with your gastroenterology and surgery colleagues is paramount in caring for these patients. You know, sometimes maybe it's not appropriate for GI to scope a patient and instead they need to come straight to IR. Um, there may be instances where in surgery is the correct decision and algorithms are important, but you also have to be flexible at times if it's in the best interest of the patient. You know, acute GI bleeds are never a scheduled case, and most of the time will cause you to stay late or come in at an improper uh, or in an inopportune time, but you can't let that lead to poor patient care. You know, that's, that's why they pay you the small to medium bucks. It does seem like flexibility is key to the best practice of medicine. Dr. Brandis, if you were on an elevator with an aspiring interventional radiologist who was going to see his or her first case of an IR procedure for a patient with a GI bleed, what insight would you share before one of you had to step off of the elevator? Well, if it's lower GI bleeding, I'd, su I'd suggest they put some Vicks and rub it under their nose because there's really nothing that smells as bad as active lower GI bleeding. Um, but seriously, I think GI bleeds have for a long time gotten a bad rap because in the earlier years, they were often negative arteriograms and they happen at horrible hours. So just the mention of GI bleeding will get a groan from the experienced uh, IR technologist and nurse. However, I'd like to try to instill some enthusiasm to the young aspiring IR about the case. You know, we have a game plan, we have the technology, and we have the desire. We're going to stop this patient's hemorrhage, save them from a potential disaster emergency surgery, and get to post the case afterwards on Twitter after the necessary wait time as not to incur the Twitter curse, of course. Um, but it's an amazing feeling uh, knowing you stop the bleeding and save the patient's life, and that never gets old. So as an avid Twitter IR med student, I have to ask, what is the Twitter curse? So I think it's similar to maybe the Madden curse. Uh, if you know that, you know, EA Sports, if you put a player on the cover of the Madden game, they're, they're going to get injured. The Twitter curse is 
if you immediately post uh, an interesting case you performed onto Twitter, there's a 99% chance that some terrible complication is going to result uh, from that procedure. I think a few of us have come up with uh, a 72-hour hold time on posting cases to Twitter as not to jinx yourself and cause any unnecessary complications. They say that athletes are very superstitious, but I think a lot of physicians are just as superstitious. <laughs> and with that, um, I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Brandis. I can't think of a, a better note to, to end on. Um, I'll keep, keep in mind the best patient care even when it comes to posting the case. Thank you. It's been uh, a pleasure speaking with you today, and uh, I look forward to uh, future episodes. Yeah, thank you for letting us interview you and giving us a much longer list of future episodes to do that we'll invariably be calling you to interview about. Or maybe we can have you with us to discuss with a couple of other interventional radiologists out there any of the large breadth of interventions that uh, interventional radiologists can do to help patients. Yeah, that sounds great. That's it for this episode. If you would like to be a part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you are interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in any other way, please let us know. Our email address is thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. Please keep an eye out for our next episode where we will learn more about percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography or PTC. We will be publishing many episodes in the upcoming months, but we will also be at SAR 18 in LA this next week. We hope to be recording live interviews with SAR 18 LA attendees on a variety of topics. If you are interested in discussing the topics of the national meeting with us, please reach out to us via Twitter or email. Hope to see you there.